that to get from here to there, you're like, oh my God, how do you do that? But when you break it down, it seems so, like so much less overwhelming, you know? And you can actually do it. And then you do do it. You know, there's a huge NFT buzz, right, the past like 18 months. Everybody's freaking out about these things. But I don't think, you know, the way they were being promoted was as um, effective to showcase the capabilities of the technology. Brick walls are there not to keep us out, but to show us how bad we really want something. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Sagan Experience, the show where we explore life stories that help you become the absolute best version of yourself. Today, I am joined by Christian Babikian. Christian is an accomplished musician and businessman, currently doing business development and innovation at a music tech company. Previously VP Creative at a at Green and Bloom, he is a music industry expert, especially when it comes to music rights, licensing, publishing, and the future of music and tech in general. Christian, welcome to the show. How you doing, buddy? Good to see you, Pretty Chris. good, pretty good. You're flattering me here with that introduction. An expert. <laughs> I even was an expert in Guitar Hero. This is, this is great. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll add that on to uh, to the resume as well. All right, so Christian, you are obviously super into music uh, yeah. and business, uh, but tell me a little bit about how music played a role in your childhood. Like, when did you, you know, first uh, pick up a guitar or a piano, and when did that kind of you know musician's journey start for you? My interest in music started really early on. Um, when I was, you know, you're going to laugh at this, but in preschool, right, uh, my dad, my mom, they would play music that was familiar to them. And one that really stuck out to me was The Doors, right? And so my dad would play, you know, L.A. Woman and, and you know, Break On Through. But Riders on the Storm really stuck out to me. So in preschool, we had show and tell day and kids bring in toys or whatever. I brought in the Doors Greatest Hits CD to play Riders on the Storm for the class. And I was like, isn't this the coolest thing ever? I was very excited about it. So it was kind of like listening to music started then. Um, and then as I got a little bit older, you know, I got into elementary school and I played sports a lot, um, you know, basketball, baseball, tennis, all these different things. And I enjoyed those. But then, you know, in fourth grade, the, the music teacher came in and was like, hey, listen, you know, these are some instruments you can guys can play. You know, and showed us the violin, the viola, and the cello. And I was like, she'd play this little, like, surfboard boogie kind of, like, 12-bar blues thing, a 145 blues. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. So I said, I want to do that. So I picked up the cello in fourth grade, and that's where it started. But it didn't just, like, you know, I, I got into like, the classical music. It kind of evolved from there. I wanted to, you know, uh, dive more into the rock and roll side of things. Um, and so around, like, sixth grade... I got really into Aerosmith, right, and uh, and like Led Zeppelin and these like rock and roll bands, and I wanted to play guitar because I wanted to be, you know, like like do what Joe Perry does and Jimmy Page and all these guys. And it was my orchestra teacher at the time. I said, "Hey, I want to play guitar. What, uh, you know, any advice? Like, can you give me any insight?" And she's like, "Why do you want to play guitar?" I said, "Well, because rock and roll." She's like, "Have you thought about the bass?" I said, what's the bass? You know, tell me, like, enlighten me here. A little sixth grade Christian had no idea. And, um, and she's like, you know, it's the bass guitar. Like, you're, like, our bass players who, who are in these rock and roll bands who do it. You know, and, you know, whatever. Told me John Paul Jones and, like, Tom Hamilton and Getty Lee, these rock stars. And she goes, and plus, it's the bass cleft, which is what you've been reading with the cello for the past few years. So it'll be a little bit, you know, smoother of a transition. 
I said, all right, let's, let's give it a shot. So, you know, for Christmas that year in seventh grade, my parents got me my first bass guitar and it was just like, you know, that was like the rocket from there. Like it just kept going. I, I learned, you know, how to play different songs. Um, and I was learning, uh, you know, these different bass players and everything. I just really like loved this instrument. Um, and I still play today. I know Chris, you're, you're a fellow bassist over here. I think the best people are, are bassists. Um, but, uh, yeah, that's really kind of what got me into it initially. And then, you know, we'll, we'll talk more about it later, but that's like what led me to kind of where I am now. It really started, believe it or not, in, in preschool with like listening to the doors and, and bringing that into becoming a bass player to continuing the business side of the music. When did you when did you first get into like the music industry? Because now, you know, you're you know, working for record labels, like on the publishing side. Now you're in music, like tech. But when did you kind of first get your foot in the door, like professionally in the music industry? And how did that like happen? Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, this was kind of a funny story. And I, I don't know if I ever told you this one, Chris, like like in, in full here. But um, I think I think you'll appreciate this one. So, it you know, my degree is international business and finance. Right. And that was kind of like always like the, the track that, you know, I thought I was supposed to go. I mean, my, my family does that. Most of my, you know, my parents, most of my family does that. People around me, it's kind of my friend's parents. That, that's like when you're kind of this close to New York, that's that's the main industry, I guess you could say. Like, you see a lot of, I guess, you, know, you see a lot of that. Like people working these finance Wall Street kind of jobs. And it was, okay, cool. You know, it was interesting to me. I, I'd have these internships. I went to college for it. My internships and everything were finance, business-based freshman, sophomore, junior year of college. It wasn't until the summer before senior year that I was like, maybe there's this business side of music. Because before I thought it was either you're a rock star or you're, you're not. Like there's, there, I, didn't, I didn't know any middle ground there. So that's when I Googled jobs and music and like A&R pops up, right? And I was like, oh, like let's dive into that. I'm like, this is a job. Like people can do this, like get paid to do this. This sounds really cool, you know? And you had, I think just finished your internship at, at, um, one of the labels. Right. And so I think it was Interscope or whichever one. And so yeah, I was yeah, asking yeah. you about it and you were like, yeah, this is kind of what that side of the business is. So you kind of gave me some insight on it. I was trying to, anybody I knew who could, I can ask these questions to it's like, all right, I got to, I got to try this, you know, I got to see maybe if we can get an internship. So I kind of like talked to some people that I knew about maybe if somebody can like pass my resume along and I, I applied for a bunch of them online, you know, universal warrant, whatever, just like, I mean, but it's just like a bottomless pit when you like sometimes apply for these things online, you throw your resume in and it is what you get lucky. Sometimes, you know, they get hundreds, sometimes thousands of these resumes. Fine. I understood that. So it was getting close to the start of the semester at uh, at Pepperdine, right? And, and there was this internship class, and you had to have your internship decided, you know, in order to be in the class. And the deadline was approaching. I wasn't hearing back from anybody. I'm kind of like, you know, panicking a little bit. Like, what am I going to do here? This is kind of like the chance to try this out. Like, I don't, whatever. So I'll preface it with this. In high school, I, I got a job working at a clothing store, right? And the way I kind of did that, like, I went down to the main street and just went door to door to the clothing stores and said, hi, I'd love a summer gig here if you guys are hiring, right? Like Maybe this will work in the music business now. So one day I printed out in like a, in like a, a moment of 
you know, I guess you could say desperation. I printed out like 10 copies of my resume and just drove down to all the different labels. Now, mind you, I had no idea what publishing was. I was looking at the record label side of things. So I go into, you know, the Interscope office. I, I go to the, the Def Jam office, Republic, right? Capital. And nine out of 10, you know, I barely got in the front door. They all said like, kid, you're crazy. Get the hell out of here. Like, what do you, like the, the security guard was like, why, what are you doing? Like, go apply in line. I'm like, I did. But like, I'm not hearing back. I need to, like, I just really, can you, is there somebody you can give a resume to? They're, they're like the security guard. They don't, like, you know, they're, they're not going to pass my resume along, you know? So I'm just like, all right, fine. So I'm about to go home. I go in my car. I'm like, I went to all these ones. Like, let me try Sony. Sony has to have an office in Los Angeles, right? Come on. So I type in Sony Music Los Angeles office, and an address came up. And I was like, all right, cool. So I go to the address. It was close enough, right? It was close enough to Santa Monica. So I go in. I park my car and I look outside and like it's not this huge building. It's like I mean it's like a big building, but it doesn't say like Sony really anywhere. So finally I see like a sign on the side and it says Sony ATV Publishing, and I was like uh, it says Sony. It must be the same thing, right? Whatever. So it's important for later on. So then finally I, I walk in the door and um, instead of giving my spiel to the security guard. I was like, hey, do you know where the Sony office is? And he's like, yeah, you know, third floor on the right. I was like, cool, thanks. So I go in and I was able to walk into the Sony office and there's the receptionist and she's there. And I was like, like a, like a Sony employee, you know, like I was like, hi. She's like, hey, can I help you? I was like, listen, like, you know, you think I'm nuts, but I'm, I'm a senior at Pepperdine. Uh, you know, I, I would just love an internship here. Like, I don't know, are you guys like hiring at all? Do you know anything? And she was like, Oh, yeah, like, that's great. She's really cool, like, younger girl. She was like, you know, got it. She graduated recently. And she's like, yeah, you know, I think actually this department, um, I heard somebody mentioning that they, that they needed somebody. Like, do you have a resume that I can pass? I was like, I do. Here you go. And she was like, well, thank you very much. And she's like, listen, I'm going to pass this along. But if you don't, you know, like, they, they're looking to fill this role soon. Um, so if you don't hear back from somebody by like tomorrow or the next day, here's the hiring, here's our HR woman, like give her a call. Cause I know that they would really appreciate that. I was like, okay, thank you so much. And so I went home and I was like, this is a dream. There's no way this is going to happen. Right. Uh, sure enough, the next day I get a call from the, the hiring manager and she's like, hi Christian. Like, you know, I got your resume yesterday. From, you know, our receptions passed us along. I heard you came by. Um, would love to, you know, set up a time for an interview for you. Like, can we do this? I said, yeah, great. So we set up a time for an interview. And I'm like, I can't believe this. This is amazing, right? So we do the whole interview and um, they're like, listen, we're looking to hire soon. If we do go with you, like, can you start like Friday? Like, this is like in two days. I was like, yeah, okay. So turn off the hang up. And then like later that day, I get an email. Hi, Christian. We'd love to offer you an internship for this semester at Sony. I was like, oh my God. Okay. Like, let, let's do this. So I, 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 of course I accepted that. I was like, you know, dying over here. And the team that that was on was on the, like the copyright side of things, right? So that was like, you know, chasing splits down, making sure things were registered in the system and, um, and all that kind of stuff. So I was like, okay, cool. So I, I get on that, you know, I, I'm on that team. I start learning how the copyright side of publishing works. And that's kind of when I started realizing, oh, this isn't the same as the label side of things. Like these are songwriters versus the artist. Okay. So I started kind of, it took some time because like, you know, I'd never seen this really before, but I started figuring out like what the difference was and how they represent the compositions versus the recordings and things like that. So it was really cool. So I did that for the fall semester. And during that time, 
um, one of the VPs kind of like uh, on the creative A&R side, I just started chatting with him and um, his name was Jim Vellitato, very, very great guy, uh, ended up becoming my mentor. He, while I was there, he uh, told me what A&R was on, on a publishing side. I was like, that sounds really cool. I'd love to learn more. He's like, well, are you, what are you doing in the spring? I said, like nothing. Like they, they didn't ask me to stay or anything. He goes, all right, I'm asking you to stay. Like stay on and work with me and I'll show you how this all works. I was like, oh my God, that's amazing. Um, so I stayed on with him and uh, in that spring semester is when I was like working with him. Like we'd go through the back catalog of all these songs. Uh, he would really help me, you know, hone my ear and, and train it to really help to decipher a good song from a great song. Like in like what someone would want to cut. And like if someone says they're looking for a song that sounds like this, here's what that means. And, uh, you know, if you're signing a writer, what do I look for when I do this? So it was really, I mean, the guy had been there for like over 20 years. So he had all this like wealth of knowledge I was able to learn from. Um, and I always joked that was like my grad school, like working under this guy, like while I was there. Um, and it was the coolest thing. So then I got fortunate enough when I was coming time to graduate from Pepperdine, um, uh, you know, a role opened up, not on the creative side. It was more the digital services side. But Jim was like, listen, apply for like, you know, we're not hiring on the creative side, but apply for this job. And, you know, if you can get it, then then you'll at least be in the building. So I applied. There was like five other interns and me, like we're all like, like duking it out for it. And they ended up picking me, which I was, again, very fortunate for that. And so that's how I got hired full time at Sony and then kind of went from there. But that was that was my onboarding to a long answer to your question. How'd you get here? Yeah, that was the start of it all. <laughs> Uh, I I love that story because uh, it especially illustrates like you know going to like the different like labels or who you thought were the labels and just like you know yeah. resume in hand. And I think these days so many people you know especially as they're trying to start their career or like shift to something new or different. You know I I think more and more people are kind of you know exploring other avenues for their jobs. Um, and you know, trying to figure out what it is they really like love to do, but sometimes you just got to go to like, you know, the receptionist or do cold calling or like walk up with your resume. And especially I think like in-person interactions, like really do make a difference. Uh, so I I'm glad you mentioned that. Cause I think it's like important for people to kind of also have that mentality. Cause I feel like it's getting a little bit lost these days where it's just like, Oh, I'll just like, you know shoot over my resume on LinkedIn and like hope for the best. But sometimes you got to like take those extra steps to really go and, you know, show you care. And, um, and sometimes, you know, you, uh, you know, I was going to say get lucky, but I think luck is really like, what do they say? Where preparation meets opportunity. And I think yeah. you're prepared. You had your resume, you knew the industry. Well, you're obviously very eager and excited to get started. And like, you know, it led you to like launch your career in music um, so can you quickly explain, and you did touch on this a little bit, uh, the main differences between publishing and then the label side, because I think most people, when they think of the music industry, they think of the label side, you know, it's, uh, the marketing, it's like the signing of the artists. You have these big contracts, uh, which really the labels, I think, you know, in layman's terms act as the bank where they kind of like forward, like a loan to the artists and the artists have to like pay back to a certain point. Um, whereas, you know, the publishing side, it's, it's quite a bit different. It's like, you know, writers and people who really kind of like, you know, own or copyright, like the, mm -hmm. the music on the back end, um, whether it's like a combination of notes or like lyrics. Uh, and, and I really see like a lot of 
you know, labels like Sony encompass like, you know, all of those areas. But I think one of the most lucrative um, parts of it is the publishing side because it almost stands the test of time. This is where you're seeing people like buying catalogs, right, of like the Beatles or Michael Jackson or whatever. And like even like hedge funds now and venture capitalists are like and institutions are buying up these huge catalogs. So you really see there's value there over time. Like even, you know, decades later, there's still a huge demand for people listening to, you know, like older music. And um, can you just kind of explain like the key differences between like the publishing side and the label side? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think, yeah, you touched on like like a, a great you know, overview of it there. But, you know, with the, you know, the, the label side, to your point, I think a lot of people know that side more. Uh, you know, you think like the label exec, the A&R. It's like, you know, I guess you could say like the sexier side of the business. You know, like when you watch these shows like Empire or, or uh, what's that, Nashville, whatever, like that's like who you see going. Like the, like the person going down, like that the band is trying to um, impress because they want to be signed. It's the label side of things. And also they're, you know, pressing the records and they're like, that. that's kind of like the product side too. So that's what the consumer usually sees. Um, but, you know, and so they represent artists. But on the other side, the total other side, on the composition, the publishing side, that's the songwriters. I mean, if you ask me, that's the backbone to the whole industry. Like these songwriters really are. Because they're creating the works that, that you know, are people compositions for people to, to sing right and like that's without that there's nothing there's no content really at the end of the day um so that's why it's really the publishing side i i really like i in my story i kind of fell backwards into it but i i it makes the most sense to me i really respect and appreciate the songwriters because the coolest part about that was especially being at sony you'd meet these songwriters who you know, they would, you might not, I mean, starting as this young kid, starting out Sony, like, I didn't know their name maybe right away, but I was like, oh my God, you wrote this song? You wrote that? Like, I love that song. Like, are you in the band? Oh, you're, oh, you're not in the band. So how did that, you said learning that they're not always part of the band. Like maybe the band will write the song with the songwriter or maybe not. Maybe the songwriter just creates it on their own and, you know, they're not an artist. Maybe they, maybe they can sing, maybe they can't sing, but forever, they're, they're not a performer. So they will give those songs to the artists to record. Um, and that's kind of the job of the A&R at a publisher, how it's a little different than the A&R at a label, um, which is kind of the side that I was on, um, doing A&R and publishing. So that was that was really interesting. And, and to your point about the value behind these songs, like one composition, if you write a song, it can have essentially and potentially an infinite amount of, of lives. And what I mean by that is the amount of cover versions of it, about recordings of that one song. So a great example is um, uh, yesterday, right? Beatles, right? Lennon McCartney, really McCartney, but we'll say Lennon and McCartney, like write this one song. I think that's one of the most uh, covered songs in history, right? There's like thousands of covers of it. So every time there's a cover of it, that artist and the label that represents that artist, they get paid for that one version of that song. So, you know, let's say, yeah. Taylor Swift covers yesterday, right? You know, Taylor Swift's label will get paid for that version of yesterday that, that she sings. Great, fine. But also on the other side, Lennon McCartney, in this case Sony, will get paid for the um, publishing side of things. But guess what? If you meet anybody else goes and covers yesterday, Taylor Swift's label doesn't get paid for those covers of it. You know, our labels do, fine. 
But every one of those covers, McCartney and Lennon's, you know, publishing, because they wrote it, will get paid for that. So it's like this, all these tentacles that can come off of one song. It's so cool. So that's why you'll see publishing catalogs are usually smaller because, like, there's, like, more recordings of songs. It's not, it's not one-to-one. Um, but the value behind them is is so high. I, and I think, if you ask me, I think it's an undervalued piece of investment right now. And it's so cool, though, to see these financial institutions getting involved in this space, um, you know, seeing music as these alternative, as, as viable alternative assets to invest in. You know, they're uncorrelated from the market. They, like, are, are essentially annuities because royalties come in and, and, and like, you can make money off of the royalties. It's not just, like, a, you buy it and hope it goes up and resell it in 10 years. Along the way, you are making money off this catalog. It's really interesting to see this piece here. So that's why, that's what really excites me right now is um, the catalog investment side of things. But that's, you know, to answer your question, that's like the difference between the recording side and the publishing side, which I did not know walking into Sony that first day. Um, for, you know, perhaps newer, like, songwriters or people who are looking to kind of, you know, copyright their music, and I think this also, you know, applies to producers when they create a beat, how can they ensure that they're really getting the, you know, monetary compensation that's, like, to them uh, to, you know, copyright that piece of work. Because I think something that we're seeing now is, you know, especially when you create a beat or create like a certain melody, uh, it's kind of hard to trace, you know, that back um, or, or to like really figure out who's using it and who's not. How, how can you like put your stamp on that and make sure that it is yours and you're getting the proper, you know, royalties uh, for people like using that, you know, those melodies or that beat. Like technology obviously is making that, you know, easier and easier to protect yourself. Like a great way to do it is through companies that do like fingerprinting or watermarking, right? Of audio. And what that is essentially fingerprinting, uh, watermarking, sorry, watermarking is like when, um, it's like watermarking anything like, like there, it, it embeds, um, a, a recognizable wavelength that a, um, a music identifying, you know, service can say this piece of music exists in there. So it's like, you can, you can track to see where, um, if that file was the one that you sent out because it's been watermarked, you can see, you know, where it came from and that this is yours, right? Fingerprinting very similarly, except instead of embedding a piece of um, information into the track, it, uh, takes like a sonic blueprint, if you will, of, of a wave file. And, I mean, think of like like Shazam, right? Is the best way to think about it here. So that's why when you identify the song with your song identification tool, you can say this is this piece of information. The difference is between watermarking and fingerprinting. Fingerprinting um, is a little more all-encompassing, saying like you know we identify that sonic structure. So if you make a copy of the song, right, and send it out, they'll still be able to identify it. With watermarking, let's say you you have two MP3s of the same song. And only apply a watermark to one, it will recognize that one, but won't recognize the other because it's it's searching for that that code, that ID in the song that the second one doesn't have, right? Because it wasn't applied to it. So that's why if you ask me, fingerprinting is a little bit more robust. Um, but so that's one way to make sure that you know your stuff can be identified. But really, what it comes down to is make sure your data is organized and clean. I cannot stress that like enough, right? Um, I'm going to tell like a little story here and how it all ties together. So when I was at Sony and I started out on the – my full-time job at Sony, I started on the um, digital services side of things. 
So my job was to go through and enhance the song with creative and subjective metadata, mood, meter, genre, right, and making sure that that information in those audio files of all the songs that Sony controlled was linked to a separate database that had all the um, copyright information, right, how much split percentages that everybody had on the songs, how much Sony controlled, things like that. So that was really cool. And I, that's how I started it. And then as I got more into A&R responsibilities, I started pitching and plugging songs. And this is what I was doing under my mentor. Uh, it's actually kind of funny kind of tying it all in together here. I actually became like the lead liaison between our LA office and our Asia territory offices. So like China, Japan, Korea, I was pitching and plugging songs to the you know K-pop, J-pop, C-pop artists over there. Uh, the demos from our writers to be recorded by those artists. So what would happen, and this happened at Sony, and then even later on in my other A&R career, you know, other roles, I get a cut, and you have to get it cleared by, because it's a first use, right? You have to get it cleared by the owners of the song, by all the um, songwriters. So, if I get the cut and the song doesn't have the information on it, right, I have to go hunt it down, like all the songwriters and, and who to contact to get this information from. So some of the songs I was pitching, Chris, were like, seven, eight-year-old, you know, demos that were sitting on a hard drive, but I would go through, I'd listen, I'd mine them, I'd pitch it and give it life, right? So I'd call the, our writer, the Sony writer, like, hey, listen, I got you the cut. They're like, oh, that's great. I'm like, listen, I just need to know the other songwriters so I can contact them and get this all cleared. And they're like, oh, man, I haven't spoken to them since we wrote that song. Jeez, that was like eight years ago. He's like, I think, you know, here are their names, but I don't know how to get a hold of them. So I have to go put on like this, you know, like, detective hat and like go and try to find these people where they are now who they're represented by get that right and like, some of these songs have like four or five writers on them. so because i you know i cared i was really excited i would do this um but people aren't always doing this so if that song got cut and then an AR or a sync person looks and sees oh my god there's 10 writers on it who haven't spoken to each other i don't know how i'm going to clear this they're not going to give you that it opportunity. They're going to say, I'll go to the next song that has one writer or two writers or the people who have their information, um, you know, buttoned up and, and together and ready to present. So that's why like, I tell all songwriters, I tell anybody, but especially the songwriters and producers, if, if you really want to get into this side of the business, you know, keep creating, obviously, you know, you got to have a good product, but at the end of it all, make sure your data is organized. It's the only way that you're going to be properly attributed, represented, and also paid at, at the end of it all. So these tech companies, kind of what I'm doing now, I'm working on the music data side of things, trying to organize ownership rights data to ensure that people can get paid fairly and properly credited. Um, but, you know, it has to start somewhere. If you're the songwriter, that's the genesis of the song. No one knows more about you than you. So you got to make sure your information is all square and all together. So that, that's my biggest piece of insight for these people. Yeah, that's great advice because I think people, you know, especially creatives and you know, musicians and writers, uh, you know, they're obviously super in the moment with creating, you know, that piece of work, but sure. don't think to, you know, how to catalog it or to put in the metadata or really just like, you know, record it, uh, which actually is a great segue to my next question with what the future looks like with music and essentially embedding like the data in like songs, uh, you know, in copyright publishing, um, with, with blockchain, right, and almost having like this irrefutable data set online, uh, like a ledger where you're essentially like implanting that and sure. th the world can see it. it's decentralized. There's no kind of central governance of uh, or gatekeeping, you know, with that. Uh, so I want to ask you a little bit about that. Um, 
And uh, so just really quick, I, uh, I actually first kind of heard about like blockchain and how it applies to music in like 2015. Uh, I was working for the Recording nice. Academy and one of, uh, who put on the Grammys, but they also have a bu- bunch of other sub brands like Music Cares, who's like nonprofit that helps, you know, musicians um, in, in a variety of ways. Oh, also yeah. Grammy U with helping, uh, you know, college kids, you know, get into the music industry and just like educate them. Uh, but one thing I was tasked to do is really fi- work with writers to create interesting content uh, for the music industry. And one thing that I stumbled upon was a Forbes article uh, where they interviewed Imogen Heap and she created this, uh, or at the time she was creating this, you know, company called Mycelia. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I remember reading about that and just my mind was blown uh, the way she described like how this blockchain technology and I know it, it, it had sort of been around a little bit, but it's still very much in its infancy. I mean, I think it still is. But yeah. she kind of described how, uh, to put it simply, you know, whenever someone like listens to a song or streams it or downloads it or buys it, that uh, we're able to use that tech to essentially have like the proper royalties go, you know, set by the creators, go straight to the publishers, the artists, the songwriters almost immediately. And I could see that being an incredible way for artists to, you know, get a lot of like that power almost back to them, which a lot of the labels have been gatekeeping for a long time. Uh, and almost in a sense, be on a path to potentially eliminating labels uh, in a lot of ways, especially as the internet becomes a lot more democratized and artists kind of get smarter with being able to market their music or not needing a lot of middlemen to like, distribute it or get it out there, you know, especially with advancement of technology. Uh, so I wanted to ask you about a, lot, a little bit about that, like the blockchain, how it applies to music and publishing, especially, and, you know, perhaps where it is now, but also where you see it kind of going in the future. Cause I think this is like super interesting and can completely change the landscape of how creators are compensated, uh, where it really, again, puts the power back into like the artist's hands. Oh, where, where do you see this going in the future? You know, what does that look like in your opinion? Yeah, no, I think um, you know, blockchain, it was like the biggest hype word in this business, in the music business, I mean, specifically, like 2018, 2019. And then I think it was a lot of the evangelists that were like, it's going to save everything that really kind of turned a lot of people off of it in this business. Um but now I think it's finally like the dust is starting to settle, right? And um, I mean, we see like like the crypto markets, like it's it's down a lot, obviously, especially from like last year's highs. But um, it's because it, people I think are finally starting to research more the practical applications of it. So, for example, like starting going back to like you know 2017, 2018, there was like a lot of hype in this business, like okay. Blockchain, you know, decentralized, organized data. Throw all this, um, throw throw all this information on the blockchain, and it'll sort itself out. And I'm over here sitting, you know, in, in publishing land. I'm going, I, I don't think it's that simple, people. Like, I think you actually like you, this is a big problem. I mean, data in the music industry is a huge problem, right? It's, it's no secret, right? This is why royalties don't go where they're supposed to go. This is why songs don't get licensed properly. This is why lawsuits happen because of royal, you know, money gets withheld. So the data in the music industry and lack of transparency um, of it is really a big issue. So I, 
I think you know we'll look at blockchain as like a way to record um, you know information right in transactions. I think there's a big opportunity for it to help um, in the music data space. Uh, so for example, you know um, so let's start here. Let's say it's you know you and I write a song, Chris. We're gonna take that information right. We have all the information about us: your your, your name, your publisher your IPI number, whatever is attached to the song, we can register that information, if you want to say, to the chain in its block. If anybody has any questions, here's the hash, open it up, and then you can see what information is attached to that. Oh, you know, Chris and Christian wrote this song. Great. Um, if Where that can be beneficial is in, in the royalty flow here. So, okay, let's just say, for example, you know, Spotify needs to make a royalty payment and they don't know who to pay, right? They can go look at these transactions and these... Uh, um, events in the chain and say, okay, this is where the money is supposed to go, and here's the percentage break. For whatever reason, if they don't have the information, which they should have on their own, it's at least you can reference a, a spot that, that's, you know, uh, immutable, because the blockchain is an immutable ledger, right, and see what that information was. And guess what? If it changes, for example, hey, let's say, uh, you know, we we realize that uh, we, we actually sampled a different song by mistake, or we want to give credit to somebody else, we'll bring a third person in, and that doesn't override that first version of data, we now have the second version of data, so you can always see where it came from. Or let's say you sell your publishing to somebody else. Now that's a new entry, so we can see you know where the whole tracking was. So this publisher, or um, uh, if Spotify's making a payment, they can kind of, they'll see this track of, of, um, of history and know that, oh, wait, on this date, this happened, so I shouldn't pay Chris anymore because he's all his catalog, i got to pay this person now. So it, providing that transparency on the data side is a real opportunity for the chain. Going to the next step here, I think it'll really, you know, when it finds its home, it's, it has a lot of limitations at this point, I think, you know, especially with cost and scalability, but an opportunity that could exist for it is on the catalog investment side of things, which I, I gave an example of if you sold your catalog. Let's say on the bigger side, if a writer wants to sell their whole catalog to a private equity firm or, or even an individual investor, how do you do that? Well, the chain can ensure that when the data goes through and the sale happens that the new owner is um, is represented effectively enough, right? And say like that, don't pay the old owner, as I mentioned before, pay this new person here. So that, uh, what, what do you want to say, like that, that track of history and that, that track of changes is really where the value I think could be, but I think it's still early to see how a company or just the technology as a whole will be used, affect how it can be implemented. Because people are still hesitant. A lot of the bigger music companies are definitely set in their ways, um, but there are opportunities to, to bring the industry forward on the data side, especially. You think a lot of it is kind of the larger labels almost like lobbying to prevent that a little bit? Because, you know, fr from what I've you know, experience, a lot of the frustration comes from the artist side where, you know, they kind of get a check like, you know, every month or whatever it is. Uh, but it's not necessarily highlighting like the, the division of, you know, why they're getting that amount. Uh, and there's kind of like just a lack of like transparency there where I feel like the, the blockchain, and again, just, just for layman's terms and for people who might not exactly know what blockchain is just i think uh and i'm still learning as as well to be honest um but it's really like you know a ledger let's say you have a piece of paper and you're just like essentially recording what happens like each step of the way 
And I think you did a great job kind of illustrating like, hey, if, you know, we say, hey, uh, Christian Squared, you know, writes a song. Uh, <laughs> like, you know, we're both the writers. Uh, you know, we have to write our last name. Yeah. So because I know we're essentially identical and uh, we have to put that in the in the ledger. And then if we add someone else, let's say a third, you know, Christian, uh, we just have to make it like very clear every step that we've taken. And then also perhaps like a royalty structure, like maybe we agree like, you know, you get 20%, I get 20%. Um, maybe, uh, you know, I want to put my dog on there. She, you know, gives a little like woof at the end of the song. And we're like, you know what, we're going to give her 10%. But everything's like just very clearly recorded there. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of the frustration comes from labels not essentially disclosing, you know, how much of the cut they're taking as like the middleman. Uh would you say like that's accurate and that you know blockchain uh, or at least that type of tech could help solve uh, those those type of issues? It definitely can help in the transparency piece. Um, you know, and it's funny you talk about like is uh, are the majors kind of like you know keeping holding things back? I don't think anymore. I think they're starting to realize just like I think streaming was the last, um, you know, eye-opening experience for them to realize, oh, if we don't, you know, get on board, you know, implement, adapt, adopt, all of it, we're going to get left behind. We saw that with, you know, uh, CDs initially, right, and then the MP3s coming out, and that almost ruined the whole business because they didn't get their, you know, their hand, they just rejected it. And then streaming comes out, which initially was kind of rejected at first, but then realized, oh, this isn't, you know, like a poison pill, this is actually something that's going to stop the bleeding, and how do we get involved? And that was streaming however many years ago, about 10 years ago, give or take, right? Now we're getting to this whole Web3 space, right, with, you know, Metaverse and NFTs. And at least I'm seeing a lot more of these uh, major enterprise organizations saying, okay, how do we get involved, right? Like, like how, I think they're still going to want to have their control. I think they are realizing, especially on the label side, they are losing the... Um, you know, the, the tight grasp that traditionally these enterprise companies and just labels, period, have had. Because, you know, as you mentioned before, like a label would give a loan to an artist, they would, they would, they would fund the, the recording of the, of the record, uh, the distribution of it, all this stuff, right? Now you can do that at home, right? If you have Logic, Pro Tools, and a, and a good enough microphone, we did it in the college dorm with the Dave Matthews song. You see what I'm saying? It's like people can do that themselves. The, the necessity of a label. You know, the, the marketing piece of it is still valuable, but like that actual creation of the product, the necessity of the label is, is slowly going down. So like where else can we get involved because we don't want to get made uh, completely irrelevant. So that, that's what I'm seeing in this space is more of these like, like wanting to get into how do we get into, you know, the NFT space, which is kind of like a separate conversation, but like or even like the metaverse space, but um, all kind of related to provide more transparency um, to the you know, the whole industry here, but I think it will actually increase the um, revenue avenues for both the creators and the business, you know, the businesses. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, and I think we're already seeing this with, uh, you know, how labels are trying to leverage NFTs um, yeah. with either, like, song releases or, like, merch or doing unique collectibles, you know, uh, that you can, you know, essentially sell to the, the fans. So I think it's also pushing like the innovation and creativity, you know, for, for the labels and the artists and everyone involved to like think of 
new, fun, exciting, different ways to, uh, yeah, you know, give something unique to the fans and, you know, find additional revenue streams. So I don't know. I think this could be, I think the way I've been asking it has kind of been almost had like a cynical tone a little bit um, with like all the labels, you know, and they're trying to take everyone's money um, and, you know, get the cut and not being transparent. But I I think you're right. We're definitely moving into a space where, uh, and and you, we especially started seeing this, I think, with like 360 deals as well. Where mm-hmm. uh, and and I, and I think there's you know several opinions around that, but really thinking about how like the label works with the artist to get like a, a cut of like everything, um, but work with you know when I say everything, you know uh, you know the live music shows like the merchandise they sell, you know the, the publishing like the the record like you know streams or uh, or downloads. Um, and I think it kind of almost like pushes the artists and the labels and the business side of it to get to work really a lot more, um, you know, in tangent to really ensure that, uh, you know, there's something that's fair for like everyone involved and really having like the same goals and being like more transparent with that. So, uh, yeah, I, I think there's definitely like a positive side to it. And, you know, uh, as you said, like, re- especially recently, I think, you know, things are starting to shift a little bit because I think like streaming now is the largest, um, per, you know, percentage of revenue across the music industry, right? It's overtaken. Because really? it used yeah. to be like, uh, you know, iTunes, I think, downloads and uh, even syncing as well. So think of like licensing music, to, like movies and, you know, commercials and such. But uh, I could be wrong, but I think I've read that like now streaming is kind of the main source. Uh, no, you're yeah. right. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, I think going back to what you're saying, I think it's like what has to happen is like the understanding of how the technology will be used, right? I think, and that's why it's still early. Like I always like to think about like when people talk like Web three, right, or just even like blockchain. I'm like, you know, it's almost like the internet, you know, in the beginning. Like imagine if somebody was like, oh, this is the internet, and all we're going to do with it is, uh, you know, show cat videos, whatever. And you're just kind of like. Okay, like that's cool. I could see these videos really easily. Whatever, you know, pictures on the internet did buy pizza, and but people are like wait, like you can do all this other stuff with it, and that's kind of what I'm seeing. You know, we talk about the NFT space like right now. Like there was a huge NFT buzz right the past like 18 months. Everybody's freaking out about these things, but I don't think you know the way they were being promoted was as um, effective to showcase the capabilities of the technology, right? I mean, at the end of the day, NFT, you know, for people like, and, and this is how I kind of understand it, it just, it's a way to show proof of of ownership, proof of something, right? Because it, it's a, you know, it's a transaction registered to the chain, right? So in this, in the music industry, proof of ownership is a huge, you know, ne- like a, a necessity that needs to come through, right? So I think in this business, the way the NFTs really will find a home, not necessarily through, you know, the profile picture NFTs, like the board apes and things. Like those are cool. If you want to buy the NFT and get access to a club, great. But what, what's really the utility? There has to be more utility behind it, um, I think, for, to really find it, its home in a business uh, practicality stance. So if you can, what can you package as an NFT? Well, can you package um, an audio file, metadata behind it, royalty statements, put that together, and the owner's behind it. Okay, cool. So can you sell that as an NFT? So that's kind of something I've been exploring now, too. Like We're starting to see companies that are selling royalty streams as NFTs, right? So you can buy an NFT, and by way of purchasing that, you know, you're 
your name, your wallet gets added to the list. So you get 1% of the streaming royalty or whatever that it comes down to. You get a percentage of the streaming royalties delivered to your to your wallet. That's kind of cool. There, there's value in that. That's not just buying you know a Beeple and then trying to resell it later on, right, kind of thing. You actually can invest in the royalty streams. So I'm saying what if you went one level further and said not just a royalty stream, what if you want to invest in the underlying copyright of the song? How do we do that? Can you package that information together, sell it as an NFT, and then what we talked about before, the purchaser now is recorded as the new owner of it, right? You can set up the smart contract to say this is the new owner of it, or you can set up the smart contract to say, hey, listen, the old owner right, will still get a piece of resales, things like that. So that's where I think, you know, going back to the analogy, we're not just or showing cat videos on the internet anymore. Like this is saying like there's a practicality, you know, and a really use case behind this technology to say how do we have it apply? And this is can happen in any industries, I think, in multiple industries. But if we're looking at music specifically, that's going to be a real uh, beneficial use case for NFT and blockchain technologies when you can facilitate the sale of catalogs and the transfer of that information. And we're already seeing the Wall Street money come in, the finance money come in. I think there's going to be a lot of um, uh, research and further development in that space specifically. That's what excites yeah. me at least too. Yeah, it's super interesting. Um, so you've taken us you know, on a journey from how you were like hustling, going to Sony, giving your resume, getting that job, or and even before that, picking up like your guitar and getting into the bass all the way to like how technology is like super rapidly evolved. And now you're like super involved with uh, you know, music data and, you know, licensing and really trying to be like, you know, one of the pioneers of, you know, taking that further and seeing where that's going. And, you know, uh, it, it's, it's all super interesting. Uh, tell me uh, what what's one of like the proudest moments you've had in your kind of music career so far, whether it's something when you were a lot younger, or when you're getting started or maybe something more recently they've done that you're really, you know, proud of doing and, and, and putting out there uh, into the world? Hmm. The music career? I would say, to be honest with you, Chris, it's like, kind of like, well, not necessarily one event, but a theme. And I would say that theme is just like achieving my goals, I guess you could say. Like, like finding mm. something I wanted to do and like understanding this is what I want. Like, you know, you learn about stuff, you figure what you want to do, what you don't want to do, finding what I wanted to do, honing it down and saying, that's what I'm going to do it. And that's kind of like what, you know, you saw my story, my story with Sony, that's what I wanted to do. And I, I made it happen. You know, it was not easy, right? I definitely, you know, there was luck involved, but you work hard and got made that work. Getting onto A&R, I really wanted to do that. You know, and that's kind of what I did in my latter half at Sony and then eventually the boutique publisher that I was at afterwards. A&R, I was like, I want to do this, I did it. And then currently now on the, you know, the music tech side of things and data management, I was like, this is, you know, after living, I, I saw um, a need for this solution in the business and I wanted to be part of that solution. So I was like, what companies are doing this? Them? Okay. And I, it's like, I made it happen because it, it made sense to me. I was passionate about it. And, um, and I just, I went for it and got it done. So that, that's kind of like, as far as like what I'm proud of is that I can stuff that, you know, I guess you can say you put your mind to it, whatever, like achieving those goals and getting that done. Um, and also, too, like another caveat to talk about, like in my music career kind of things, too, something I'm really proud of. Uh, I've always, when I was in L.A., I was in a band, Lust and Lies. We played a lot of gigs around, you know, the Sunset Strip, Hollywood, everywhere, Viper Room, you know, Rainbow Room, House of Blues. Never played the whiskey. So I came back to Connecticut, and my band here, um, 
I said to them, if I can get us a gig at the Whiskey A Go Go, you guys want to go out to California and do it? And they were like, yeah, let's do it. So uh, I was able to get that gig, you know, get everything rehearsed us. You know, I wrote some, I wrote a song for it and we'll get us all together and, and get us on that stage gig. We got, got tickets, I got people to show up. So it was like, that was really proud of me too. I guess something I really wanted to do it was not easy at all. You know, it took months of planning and preparation, but making that happen. So yeah, just finding a goal and achieving it really is something I'm proud of. I love the way you answer that because I think my intent with that question was also, you know, typically something that like you accomplish and maybe put out to the world, but you really answer it in a way which is like you had these like internal goals that you've always wanted to do. And I remember you telling me like, yeah, the whiskey uh, yeah. Gogo was like one of the venues that you'd always like love, you know, to play at, you know, that was almost an internal goal of yours. And now you like, you did that and you just had that like fulfillment of, you know, and, and you also you traveled, you know, across the other side of the, the country to come uh, and do that. And I think there's nothing like kind of like setting those like internal goals that like get you excited and really achieving those. So, uh, so yeah, that makes sense. It's, it's, you know, the proudest moments of your life there. So uh, another question that may be slightly related to, related to that, or, or, or perhaps not, but w- what is the hardest thing you've ever had to do in your life uh, so far? There's a book that really stood out to me that I, I read when I was in high school and was part of my college essay, actually. It's called The Last Lecture by this guy named Randy Pausch. And I check it out. It's really good. And there's a piece in the book where he talks about brick walls, right? The proverbial brick walls. And what that means are like little, not little, but things that pop up in your journey to achieve something that, um, you know, hinder it, right? And he goes to explain that brick walls are there not to keep us out, but to show us how bad we really want something. Uh, have you read this book? Do you, do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Like, no, I don't, but I love this concept, uh, and I love where you're going with this. Yeah, so I just, like, that always resonated with me. So when things get, like, hard, I, I always think of it like, you know, that was difficult but necessary. You know what I'm saying? Because, like, I wanted to do the outcome, right? So, for example, everything from getting to Sony, so even, you know, with Jessica, like, like your girlfriend, here, we did a long-term relationship, a long-distance relationship for like two and a half years after I came back from LA to you know New York here, and now she's here now we're in New York together. But like that was a brick wall in itself. So that was actually, that was really difficult. So like all these different pieces of it, um, you know, you kind of see like it's hard. At least for this house, this is difficult. But if it wasn't worth it, it wouldn't be. It wouldn't be difficult. No, I, I love that, and I think that those brick walls are all like lessons. Um, for you to, you know, learn to, in order for you to like kind of achieve those like goals, you know, you were talking about or, um, or, or those internal kind of, uh, yeah, achievements that you, you want to achieve. And I think a lot of people like when they see those brick walls, it's like, oh, I can't do this or, um, or really a lot of people get stuck on them and, but it's really there to like help you, you know, I think a lot of people see as like a negative thing and it can be in that moment in time. But, uh, often what I found is once you kind of like break through, through them, uh, you you kind of realize like, Oh, I did that. And not only do you have like that sense of achievement and like that fulfillment of like overcoming that obstacle, but also when you get to like those goals, whether they're like, you know, smaller goals or like, you know, a lot bigger ones that take time to like really accomplish, 
like that feeling of accomplishment is almost like amplified or a lot greater because you look back and you're like, oh, I remember like it really being hard, like doing those things. But then, you know, it's almost like the polarity of the tough times, but then you like really get to enjoy and, and be so fulfilled when you like hit those goals. So, uh, yeah, yeah and you I like learn that. something too, you know, like when you get to it, that's right. I did this, you know, or like you did like whatever. And then you like look back and a new situation pops up and you're like, oh, that's not so scary because I, I, I learned how to handle something like that, you know? Um, you just keep building on it. So that, that's, you know, it's like the what doesn't kill you makes you stronger mentality kind of thing, I guess, a little bit there. But at the end of it, like, don't be discouraged, you know, and like know when something's not right, you know, like when it's not actually a brick wall, it's like actually like, you know, a canyon kind of thing. But like if there's a brick wall, like push through it, you know, show yourself how bad you want something. Yeah. But also, you know, so you just said it, it helps you like learn, you know that then helps you to kind of keep moving up uh, and, you know, achieve those other goals or honestly fun things you want to do, whatever it is that perhaps might not be easy to get to. But that learning also, like you build these skill sets over time, you know, uh, almost like bricks, you know, we'll use the brick wall where you kind of like build yeah, these, exactly. these bricks of like different skills that you have to go through, you know, those tough times, to like learn, you know, learn those things then you then like as you kind of go throughout your life and like your career you kind of build these like skill sets and so when you have those like other brick walls you're like oh i've done this before like i can push through and also builds confidence as well because especially if it's something new that maybe you haven't like pushed through yet or it is an obstacle you're like okay but you know this look seems really hard but also i've done all these push through and you know knock down these other brick walls like i know i can do it and it just gives you that confidence and the more confidence you have i think the greater things you can achieve and i don't even also mean like you know in your career monetarily or like getting these big achievements but uh like for you you know it, it for example like the whiskey go-go or just like you know those things that like when you and i often hear like uh you know like I was watching like Zed's like house tour the other day, Zed the DJ sure. and he had this like, uh, like Skittles machine, uh, which like disposes like all these Skittles and it's like in his house and it's just yeah. machine. And he's like, dude, I've like always wanted kind of one of these, like, yeah, I love the candy as a kid, you know, and all that. And you could tell like for him, it was an accomplishment to like get this like machine or to have a house that has that. So it could just could be something like kind of silly like that. But to him, it's like this like big fulfillment. Sure. But it was getting through those obstacles to become the person, to become this, you know, big, big DJ or creative, you know, musician, to be able to like achieve those things. Um, so, exactly. you know, it's different for everyone. But like, uh, when you yeah. came coming from like as an international student to like Pepperdine and then going to like, did you, was that like, this is what I want to do? Was it like you hit a bunch of, you know, brick walls like uh, stuff you had to overcome in the way like how, how did that experience like for you does that apply to this at all for sure yeah uh i was thinking about this the other day i think almost like every decade of my life there's been like huge internal achievements that i've had honestly the biggest ones being like when i was a kid i was like insanely like reserved and shy and not very social yeah. um and so when i like moved to a new place like from for example, Brazil to England when I was nine, even though I was like a kid, uh, I made the very conscious decision to be like, I can almost become someone new in this new place and new environment. Uh, everyone here doesn't know who I was before. They don't know I was this like shy kid. 
where I'd go to birthday parties and literally like sit in the corner and my mom's like, go play with the kids. You know, and I'm like, you know, just crippled with that like anxiety. Um, and so for me, it was like a big achievement to be like, I can go and talk to people and, you know, and, and I, and I know that's like, you know, a very simple thing for a lot of people, but for me, it was like huge. And then, you know, similar to when I moved to the States, uh, I didn't know anyone, you know, in LA, let alone California, let alone like, you know, the U S and so, uh, there I joined a, fr- a social fraternity. Like I never thought in a million years I would like be a part of that, which is also where, uh, I think I met you, uh, was, was that the, yeah. So, um, yeah, there's a bunch of kind of those throughout my life too. Like starting a business as well. Like if you told me like 10, 15 years ago, I'd start and like run my own business, like in this new like country, I'd say like, you're nuts. I'd be like, there's no way I'd have the skill set or ability or capacity or knowledge or courage to do that. So I think, um, yeah, it totally applies like to this, like as soon as, you know, I became more social, it gave me confidence. And then even just like taking like little steps, uh, yeah, to, to get to, you know, where I am today. And a lot of it is internal, like same as you, like, just like, you know, uh, yeah, finding those things that I think, uh, in my childhood and as I grew up, I'd be like, oh, it'd be really cool to like do that. You know, I dreamed of working in the music industry, man. I, you know, I, similar to you, I think, um, I remember seeing like, uh, in, in middle school, like, uh, one of my math teachers, he played this electric guitar on stage. Uh, I think it was smoke on the water. And I thought it was the coolest thing. I was like, dude, if one day I could be on a stage, just like playing that guitar, like I never thought I would do that. You know? And then I ended up joining a band. We recorded like an album and you know, it's, 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 yeah, life is like really interesting, you know, where it kind of, but it's really a step-by-step thing. And it's just like the brick walls you're talking about. It's, um, okay, let's see if like, maybe I can pick up a guitar. Okay. Let's like, let's learn. Okay. Then break through that brick wall. Okay. I can play the guitar. Cool. All right. What's the next step? Maybe like get on stage. Chris, you can never play in front of like 20, 30 people. You know what? Fuck it. I'm going to go try it. Yeah. I do it. And then, you know, and it's just, it is again, different for everyone. I really want to emphasize that. Uh, cause some people like are naturally incredibly extroverted. Like whatever it is for you, I think just set those, you know, uh, we use the word goals. I don't know if they're just like these things that you want to accomplish that you get really excited about. So, um, yeah, totally. I think, yeah, same for me, um, in a lot of ways. Yeah. I think you hit the nail on the head with the building piece of it. Cause like when you look at, you know, a whole, you know, that to get from here to there, you're like, Oh my God, how do you do that? But when you break it down, it seems so, like so much less overwhelming, you know, and you can actually do it and then you do do it. You know, that's why I always like to tell me like what, and this is what I do for myself too. I'm like, what do I want to do? Like, or like, what is, like, what do you want to do? And what's the steps to get there? Right. Like, like what can you do tomorrow to get you to this thing that's going to take you a year to do? Right. And how do you slowly chip away at it? I think that's such an important concept for people to understand, right. If they're you know listening to this, if they're in, in, you know, in a different industry, whatever they're doing, just it applies to anything. You can't get it doesn't happen overnight and break it down. It makes it so much easier for you. Yeah. So breaking it down and, and I would say probably one of the most important aspects of, you know, this analogy and this journey is the belief that you can. And I yeah. think so many people are stuck where they're just like, I could never work for late. When they keep telling themselves that story, I could never, you know, 
And honestly, if you keep telling yourself that, you'll you'll never get there. But I think just like think of the realm of all possibilities of where you could go. Like let's say like a, almost like a tree. Like you're you're kind of like you know growing. You have the roots, and there's all these branches that go in like different directions. And you're like maybe if just one of those branches could get to like this point where I could get to this like you know top. Uh, or, or to this area of life, like, you know, it's maybe one out of like a hundred, maybe out of a thousand. But if there's one that like, you know what, if I really maybe configure some things in my life or, you know, change the way I behave or think or perspective or whatever it is, if there's not one possibility that I believe I could do that, then it is possible, you know. Um, and if you can then almost work backwards a little bit, like logically, like, well, if I could go to like, you know, the label like in person and just give my resume, like maybe a secretary, you know, or receptionist or anyone there could like give like it, it, it's possible. It's, you know, maybe 99 percent chance that, uh, you know, won't happen. But like I think it could be possible. And I think if you just have that like spark of belief, um, you know, I think the universe, God, everyone will conspire to help you get there if you really have like you know pure intentions to yeah. get to that point and um and especially if it's something involving like furthering your creativity and helping humanity in some form or another helping others i i 100 percent believe like everything around you will kind of work in your favor to get to that point um and i do want to say i i am not surprised that you've been able to achieve those things and push those through those brick walls because as long as I've known you, um, you've, you've been a really like good human being and like good person. You, you treat everyone with like respect. Um, and there's no, I've never felt like there's any like hidden agendas, you know, with you or anything like that. It's just pure like love always. And I'm not surprised that you've been able to like navigate through life like this um and kind of you know have these accomplishments and uh and also have like such a great like positive attitude so um Appreciate so that. i want to kind of start running things off and is as is tradition uh, on the podcast here at the sitting experience uh i give every guest a unique art piece uh that i created uh not, you know they're not always like really great and creative uh and and you know masterclass like art pieces but it is kind of like you know from my heart and something i put together for you and it's more just you know a gift for me to you um i think the best way is probably just to share my screen and show it to you oh my god uh, yeah so this is isn't this? something i like drew by hand actually the one there's two classes i dropped in college one was uh uh it was like the, a business like legal class which i was just like i don't know what what is going on <laughs> Yeah. Okay. Uh, like I, I, I'm out. And then the second one is art. <laughs> like I could not draw for my life. Even the the teacher pulled me aside and was like, "Yeah, we're gonna have to like you know, <laughs> yeah. extra sessions with you." Uh, so it's almost oh like quite God. ironic that now, like that's you know one of the main businesses I work on and something I just love doing. So yeah, uh, so can tell her that. Be like, hey, this is kind of yeah. This is kind of like a mix, like media piece, I guess, if you could call it that. So, all right, uh, all right, <laughs> I'm going to show it to you, and um, Let me see this. hopefully you like it. Uh, this is so exciting. 
right. Oh. All right, here you go. I, the infinite Christians. Oh, you see you. it? Yeah, dude, that's killer. Let me explain this, because um, this, so this is you in the middle, just stanky base face, Christian demons element. Big stank. Yeah. So this uh, kind of like wave around here is actually from a Lust and Lies song uh, for the Gates. And oh um, God, really? I okay. took that audio waveform and created it as like a circle. Um, so oh, yeah, 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 okay, I see. Yeah, so in, in the beginning, it kind of starts off like a little bit slow, and it builds. So it yeah, just yeah. kind of started that. Um, and then yeah, you have kind of like where you grew up down at like Malibu, Pepperdine. Uh, you know, we met at ATO. We recorded that Crash into Me song, <laughs> yeah, our cover. And you know, now I know you and Jessica are. You know, she's the love of your life and um, you guys are together now. So, you know, simple elements here, but I think just like a, uh, yeah, general like piece here, encompassing in a few, you know, items, your brief life story so far. In a that lot is of ways. amazing. Oh my God. Thank you, Chris. This is so cool. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Yeah, it's so I'll, teacher. Uh, I'll say, Hey, look at this. He's good. <laughs> He's like, he's like, Chris didn't even draw this. He just like, you know, <laughs> put it together. But I think, it, you know, it's expression. Uh, like, you know, art doesn't have to be just like pen and pencil drawing. But uh, yeah, man, this is kind of like a, you know, a gift from, from me to you. And uh, I'll send it Thank over you. to you. Thank you very much. Um, I appreciate that. I love but, uh, Christian, uh, thanks so much for taking the time and, and being on this you know podcast, man. Do you have any kind of last words of, Wisdom or just anything you want to say to like the listeners and, and watchers out there? Yeah, I guess. Well, first of all, thank you for having me. This was fantastic, right? Uh, getting to have this experience. I feel like this is, what, 10, 12 years in the making, right? <laughs> like here, yeah. Um, I, I guess just say like, you know, keep keep going, you know? Like, I mean, I you, you wrapped, I appreciate all the kind words you said about me, and I try to, you know, keep things, like, positive moving forward. It's not always easy. Like, you know, the world is the world, and life is life. You know, I think people know what that means, right? So it's just, like, you got to keep moving. Even even in the bad days, even in, like, the frustration days, even in the, the brick wall-ridden days, right? You just got to just, just keep moving and know that, you know, chip away at it, and you'll get to a good spot it's not it might not be tomorrow maybe the next day maybe a month you know but just keep moving forward every step forward is definitely the right move and when you look back you'll be very proud of where you ended up and also you know you'll be more motivated to keep going forward love that Christian thank you so much for uh, being on and thank you for all the listeners and watchers out there and we'll see you in the next episode Cool. Sounds like a plan.